And so how would you describe the general tone and environment in the legislature? Well, when I was there, we used to have fun. You know, there was some alcohol involved from time to time. We'd have a drink out back in the clerk's office. And then go into the legislature to speak. Well, you probably wouldn't do any speaking after that. You know, lots of times during estimates, there's just one or two people going to speak hour after hour and fill in the time. You know, you couldn't do it if there was a serious debate on. But during estimates, you know, the critics and the minister are doing all the questions. And you'd have free time. You could sit down and have a chat. You know, I used to sit beside a couple of the opposition members when we were government. And when we went to opposition, some of them would come over and sit with us and we'd just chat away. I don't think there's a whole lot of that friendly inter-party getting along the way we used to. Um, but I could see it falling apart towards the end of the time I was in the house. And people just stopped speaking to one another. You're listening to On the Record Offscript. My name is Mark Coffin, and I'm your host. For the rest of the summer, we're sharing some of the long-form interviews we held with former MLAs. This week, we share an interview with George Archibald, a former progressive conservative MLA from the riding of Kings North in the Annapolis Valley. For those of you who have been following along to these interviews, George represented the same riding as Mark Parent immediately before Mark was elected MLA. George held that riding for 15 years, from 1984 to 1999. He's one of the few MLAs we interviewed who actually served in the 1980s. George also served as Minister of Agriculture and later as Minister of Transportation and the Chair of the Management Board, which we now call the Treasury Board. Listening to his interview is somewhat like looking through a window in time. In this conversation, he talks about some of the changes to the culture of politics that he's observed since he began his career to when he left to what it's like now. Something I appreciated about listening to this interview was that in addition to describing a different time for politicians in Nova Scotia, he also describes some of the little moments that we didn't really hear about from all of the other MLAs and cabinet ministers we spoke with, like cleaning out the minister's car before handing it over to the minister from a different party that would replace him, those sorts of things. Anyways, here's the interview which happened at George's home in 2015 with Louise Cockrum, lead researcher for the Offscript Project. Prior to politics, I was a farmer. I graduated from the Agricultural College in Truro, McDonald College and McGill University, and then I bought a farm. Registered Holsteins, we milked, oh, about 100, sometimes it was 110, sometimes it was, but it was always 100 cows or over all the time, and they were all registered and classified, and we had very good milk production. We grew five or six hundred acres of corn and a couple hundred acres of hay. And after I sold the farm, I ran, I was chairman of a federal election campaign for Patton Allen in 1984. And right after that, there was a provincial election and everybody said, well, you better run. So I did and got elected. And so when did you first start to get involved in politics? I got involved in politics when I was milking cows on a Saturday afternoon. And a neighbor came in and said, we're having a dinner. Would you like to come? And I said, sure. So two tickets for $15. And it happened to be a political dinner. I didn't know it was a political dinner. And I hadn't any particular politics up until then. It was a great evening. Harry Howe was there. He was a member for King South. Jerry Sheehy was the guest speaker. He was from Annapolis, and Harry was supposed to introduce him, but Harry got so busy telling stories and jokes and talking that he never did introduce him. 
So that, that was how I got involved, and then a year later I was president of the association. And why did you decide to um, join the PCs, the Supposal Liberals or the NDP? Oh, I guess because they asked me to. Okay. At that point, did you ever think that you would run for politics? Nope. Hadn't planned it. I was so busy farming, you know. When I started getting involved in politics, I had no idea I'd ever run. Hadn't occurred to me. Okay, and what was that like, the nomination process? Well, um, I had done all my homework, and I had um, talked to pretty near everybody who was going to be at the meeting, and I knew how, you know, so it would have been silly for anybody to think they could get some delegates to vote for them, because I had them all voting for me. So did you carry on your career? No, I'd sold the farm. I had sold the farm, and I sort of retired. I was going to do something. You know, I wasn't going to, when I was less than 40 years old, I wasn't going to hang up the shingle then. But politics always interested me. I liked public speaking. I liked meeting people. And I, you know, I could get along with people and get them to do things and make a difference, having fun. Okay. And so were there any specific community needs that kind of prompted you to run? Like, did you see a need that needed to be met? Or were there any goals that you... Well, I knew the people wanted a new hospital. They wanted a new regional hospital in Kentville. And the only promise I ever made was that I'll build you a hospital in Kentville. And we did that. They had to raise money themselves. You know, we had to raise community money, and I donated to that. And so did everybody else. And they raised their portion. I think they had to raise 10 or 20%. Then the government built the thing. And I was very pleased with that. But that was the only time I promised anything. When you call me on the phone, I'll call you back. Those are the only things I ever promised. You went straight into government in 84. So how did you get that hospital, I guess? How, like, how did you try and get that hospital in Kentville? Or was that something that had been kind of promised by the peace? No, nobody promised it before. I talked to the Minister of Health. I talked to the... I wasn't in cabinet. I talked to the cabinet ministers, and I kept at it and at it and at it, and I kept inviting whoever happened to minister health to the valley, and kept setting up meetings with the department, and we just wore them down. And did you speak about it in the house itself as well as caucus, or not so much? No, you can't accomplish a whole lot in the in the house. You know, that's for fun and questions and stuff like that. What do you mean by that, that you can't accomplish much in the Well, if you're a member of the government and a backbencher, you know, why would you bother talking about it in the, in the legislature when it's a lot easier to sit down with the minister you're trying to talk to, just the two of you. It's a lot easier. You get more done that way. The legislature's for the opposition to try to make themselves look better and the government look worse and having fun. You know, opposition is just plain... And the legislature itself is, is fabulous when it works properly. Can you give an example of it working properly? And what would you define as like working properly? Well, it's getting worse and worse. Um, everything is so personal now. You know, when you read, it's always attacking the leader. Always the leader. He did this, you know. If you look at the Mike Duffy business, I mean, every day in the paper, week after week, the silly fool stole $90,000. They spent probably millions getting ready to convict the silly guy. And there's nothing new. Senators have been up to that for years, and they've just now gotten on to them. It's silly, but the opposition and the newspapers think if, if they beat up on Duffy or somebody else like that, it'll brush off on the 
prime minister, you know. And, and in our legislature, they used to talk about the airplane all the time. The airplane this, the airplane that. Well, you know, the airplane was taking people around, um, taking people to the hospital, taking the premier and ministers to important meetings. Yeah, airplane. but the opposition made such a ruckus about it that we sold the damn airplane. And when we went from government to opposition, several of them said, gee, wish you hadn't sold the plane. I said, yeah. You know, they, they were trying to make it out as though it was... Um, you know, we were flying it to Florida and, and flying it to ski resorts. Like, you know, you know, it was a useful thing. But when you get personal like that, rather than stay on the issues, you know, things happen that you wish didn't happen eventually. So, so when you say that the, I guess, discussion in the legislature has become too personal, do you mean both in the present day and oh, it's it. It's got worse. It was, I don't know when it started, but when I first got elected, you know, I had friends on all sides of the house, and we'd all have dinner together in the evening, you know, because when the legislature's sitting and you're in Halifax or away from home, you know, you go out for dinner, and we'd all go. Um, but I don't think that would happen today. You know, it's just, they don't like each other. You know, they're nasty to one another, and, and that's a shame, and it just gets worse. And it makes it harder and harder and harder to get people to run for the legislature. You know, when you look back at the history of, of who was, you know, the backgrounds of the people when I got into the legislature, it was amazing. We had, you know, seven or eight, nine lawyers, two or three doctors, dentists, a couple of engineers, a couple of school teachers, some business leaders. Those types of professionals can't run anymore. Not the way they could in the old days, because now it's so personal that, you know, they look at your family and raise a ruckus about everything. So it's it's hard to get people that are interested to run. And if, you know, there's somebody I wanted to get to run in Halifax, um, they could win too. But he said, I can't afford it. You know, $86,000 a year in some part of the province is a wagon load of money. But if you're living in Halifax and at the present time, you know, you, you have a profession and you're making quite a bit of money, you can't give it up. And uh, some people would say, well, make the sacrifice. Well, in the before, you used, you know, a lawyer, for instance, or an engineer, they used to be able to take time off from their law practice or their engineering career and be a politician and go back to what they were doing. But now, when you leave politics, you're not going to get a job anywhere. You know, you're damaged goods by then, and it's a shame. So we don't get any lawyers anymore. And uh, you need them. Carry on, ask me something else. Okay. And so how would you describe the general tone and environment in the legislature? Well, when I was there, we used to have fun. You know, there was some alcohol involved from time to time. We'd have a drink out back in the clerk's office. And then go into the legislature to speak. Well, you probably wouldn't do any speaking after that. You know, lots of times during estimates, there's just one or two people going to speak hour after hour and fill in the time. You know, you couldn't do it if there was a serious debate on. But during estimates, you know, the critics and the minister are doing all the questions. And you'd have free time. You could sit down and have a chat you know I used to sit beside a couple of the opposition members when we were government and when we went to opposition some of them would come over and sit with us and we'd just chat away 
I don't think there's a whole lot of that friendly inter-party getting along the way we used to. Um, but I could see it falling apart towards the end of the time I was in the house. People just stopped speaking to one another outside the house. Because, and they shouldn't. It's only 50 people in there, and they all got there the same way. It's a very exclusive club. And to get there, you're pretty special, and an awful lot of people would like to be there. So, you know, you should, you know, be nice to one another. I mean, I remember we had, we used to have dinners in the Red Room. Once a year, the speaker would have a nice dinner, buffet, they'd bring in, you know, they don't have a kitchen, they bring in all the food. Well, the NDP started saying, oh, you're squandering money. Think of the poor people. Well, the end of that. The NDP wouldn't come to the Lieutenant Governor's house for the dinner. It was a waste of money. It cost too much. You know, but those are the things that used to make the legislature work. You know, it's hard to be nasty to somebody when you just had supper with them. But the NDP were so narrow in their focus and wanted to be holier than thou, they said, we don't want to spend government money on ourselves, and, which was BS, because um, one of the wives of the NDP members asked my wife, how do you get a clothing allowance to buy clothes? She said, I go to so many more functions now since she's been elected that I, I don't want to have to keep buying new clothes. Should government pay for that? You know, and that, I thought it was so ironic because then it was so truthful. Because she was saying what she felt, but it wasn't the NDP line. You know, and they used to talk about people on welfare. And, you know, I got a bigger heart and more sympathy, and I probably needed more than most of them to the people that need assistance. But you have to do things to get along. If you want to get ahead, you have to get along. And they keep you together and and, uh, make things work. And they don't do that anymore. And so I'm going to backtrack now a bit about when you first were elected to the Legislative Assembly. So did you feel prepared for the task ahead of being an MLA in 1984, when you first got elected? Yep. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And what was your first day in the legislature like? Oh, it was exciting. You know, the day the legislature opened, they used to have a beautiful opening ceremony. They used to have a tea. They used to invite everybody's spouse to come, and newspapers would be there taking pictures. It was quite an event. It's not anymore. You know, and they've lost so much of the tradition that uh, we used to have. Uh, so it was a pretty exciting. I mean, you're, you're there with people that you've read about and heard about. You're there with the premier and that sort of thing. So it's a... Humbling experience, really. And I looked on the wall, and behind me there was a plaque to one of my ancestors. You know, I was the first Archibald in the house for a hundred years. Prior to me, there was always an Archibald from Truro in the legislature. You know, SGW prosecuted Joe Howe. Sir Adams G. was Father Confederation, first Secretary of State, Lieutenant Governor of Manitoba, PEIN, Nova Scotia. There was a lot of history in my family. That was nice, I think. So, do, were you given any training to become an MLA? Nope. So, how did you prepare for, like, how did you learn the rules of the house and, I guess, the other components? Of- oh, well, you learn that by being there. And, 
you know, they you have discussion with the speaker and other members about the house, but when you go in there and you're on the back bench, it's pretty simple. You just you're not, you're not asking questions. You you have resolutions from time to time, and every now and again you have to make a speech. You don't really learn the rules of the house until you're in opposition. That's when you learn the rules, really. And you learn how to ask a question. When I was a minister, I used to I used to get asked questions from time to time, and then I'd always say yes or no or maybe. <laughs> okay, and would you elaborate on those answers? Well, it used to be three parts. They'd ask you a question, and you'd say yes or no. So then you'd sit down. Well, that would throw them off the wagon because they weren't ready. They expected you to make a speech. So they weren't ready for their second part of the question, so they'd get up and stumble around about that. I'd give them a little more. I'd say, well, that's more a little clearer than the last time. Let's try it again. And then they'd really be mixed up. So then they'd try again. So then I'd start talking away and just tell them whatever I felt like, to, you know, whatever the message was that I had to get out. That's when I'd do it and drove them crazy. And so were there questions pre-scripted from the opposition? Theirs were, yeah. I suppose, yeah, they, had, they always had them written down. And when you gave them an answer they didn't expect, it didn't follow the script, you know. And that was fun. I know the NDP used to say, it's terrible asking you questions, you don't answer them right. I said, well, I don't like your questions and you don't like my answers, but ask me some more. And that was the way we did it. And, um, and so when you were a backbencher and you mentioned that you sometimes had to give a speech in the house, did you make that speech on your own? Did you, like, write it yourself? Or were you... Yeah, I wrote it on my hand mostly. You know, a few notes, just look down and away you go. And, like, who... How did you, I guess... Um, did you... Were you given the message by your party? Or did you kind of think of the message yourself? Well... You know, I'd be talking about something in my writing, you know, that nobody else cared, nobody else knew about. And uh, we'd just chatter away about that. And I would never say anything that was not government policy or was something that the government was, you know, anything I said would have been cleared with the minister before I said it, if it concerned him. But uh, the only thing I would talk about when I was a backbencher was my constituency and how great it was and the people. What was it like being a backbencher in caucus? Um. Well, that was where we had the opportunity to speak about a bill that was coming up. And you see, we were very different. We were very open. Legislation coming in will go to a legislation committee made up of cabinet ministers and backbenchers. If it cleared the committee, it would go to caucus because there were only you know, four or five on the committee. They would turn this stuff down. And then it would go to caucus and cabinet and then in the legislature. So everybody in our caucus knew what the legislation was before it got there. The caucus would know what it was before it got there. We'd all have had our say. Any changes that we felt had to be made would have been made. And so we'd go together as a united group. And if a caucus said we do not want that legislation. That was the end of it. Didn't go anywhere else. Because departments sit around all year dreaming up more friggin' legislation to drop. I mean, we turned down more legislation than we brought in. You don't need it. You know, it's just the legislation we have today is 
you know, and, and people are asking for more. You know, there should be a, should be a law against that. Should be a law against this. Well, people have to make up their own minds, and people have to be responsible themselves a little bit. But um, anyway, so we, um, you know, we we cleared the legislation very handily by giving everybody in our caucus an opportunity to speak on it. Okay, and so how, like, what percentage of the caucus would have to disagree with a piece of legislation for it to not go through? Oh, I don't know. You know, if there's one or two or three guys that say, this is just going to kill me. Well, it didn't take a lot. You know, if people didn't want it, it didn't happen. And did you feel it was an effective kind of forum for discussion and kind of deciding the best types of no. Why? Well, it keeps you honest is all it does. You know, the government, if you're doing something, ah, shoot, you know, we do that, it's going to show up in public accounts. So, you know, they won't do that, you know. So it does keep you honest. But as far as accomplish anything, it really doesn't. Look at the Blue Nose. You know, the NDP went out and had $20 million building a stupid boat that they can't use. I mean... Fell in Florida, built one identical to it for five million. It's up here now, Columbia. You know, it's just. In the Halifax. Yeah, he just. Yeah, no, I think it's down in Lunenburg. He just sailed it up, but he just, you know, he wanted, and I think he's built another one just like it. And he's spending twenty million on, because somebody bought the one he built. Yeah. You know, now he built it out of steel instead of wood, but, uh, you know, things like that are just ridiculous. And get a committee building things. It's, you know, like the boat to Yarmouth. When there's $5 million a year subsidy, the NDP said, oh, that's too much, we're not going to do that again. So they canceled the damn thing. And now they're spending $20 million a year trying to keep the boat going. So, you know, sometimes government does things that are pretty stupid. I'm sure we did too. And um, you mentioned that everybody would have an opportunity to speak on legislation and you had a very open caucus. How did you ensure that happened with so many people in the room? Oh, well, because they'd all know beforehand what we're going, what was going to be discussed. Uh, they had an opportunity to find out uh, what we were doing and if it was a particular concern or interest to them, they would bring in the legislation books, go over them, questions, no? You know, if they're bringing in something... A lot of it was housekeeping. Anything, any major changes it would take a little more discussion, perhaps. But so much of it's housekeeping, you know, and stuff like wear a helmet when you're riding your bicycle. Um, common sense tells you to do that. You know, things like that. Okay, and would you discuss like strategy in the house as well? All the time, every day before the house opened, our caucus would gather. And we'd have the newspapers, and you go through the newspaper, and that's going to be the first question of the day. Whatever the newspaper had that day would be the first question. So that we all were prepared, and we were a team, you know. We spent a lot of time together, you know. Um, and if somebody was a little out of sorts, we'd spend a little more time with them. How do you mean out of sorts? Well, if he wasn't happy about something, or he felt he should be in cabinet, he's not, or... You know, they should have paved this road, and they didn't. They paved, you know. If somebody was feeling they weren't getting a fair deal, we'd spend a little extra time with them. Okay. And uh, so my next question is something we've been asking all of the interviewees, and that's what do you think 
the role of an MLA is. So in an ideal world, what would, I guess, the job description be for an MLA? That's his phone, his emails, and represent the people. See, it's funny. I had a guy working for me one time, and when somebody in welfare called with a problem, didn't pay any attention to them. You know, they're in welfare. Well, those people you have to pay attention to. When somebody calls their MLA, they've been thinking of it. Sometimes they'd call on Saturday. You think, just why the hell they wait and said, the reason they waited till Saturday is it's been bugging them on Monday, on Tuesday, on Wednesday, and Thursday, and Friday. And finally, they build up the nerve to call you. Now, some of them just the opposite, you know. They always call, but for an awful lot of people, it's a big deal when they call their MLA. And the MLA better make that a big deal, too. No matter how ridiculous it is, it seems to the MLA, to the person on the other end of the phone or you're meeting with, it's not ridiculous. And it's not simple. I mean, it's little things, you know, something small that maybe you wouldn't even think about. But that was bugging them. And they call you, and you better pay attention, and you better call them back. And that was the only thing I ever promised. I'll call you back. You know, when I got elected, they didn't have internet. They didn't have email. We had a telephone, fax machines, things like that. So the telephone was very, and it wasn't a mobile phone either. It was a landline. So um, they couldn't get a hold of you 24 hours a day. So it was important that when they did call, you call them back as soon as you got the message. And that's important. And you represent those people in your area. So look after your people. And you're visible. You're walking the streets all the time. And so did you have a constituency office back then? In my house. People wanted me. I was there. I didn't have a person in my constituency because I have no idea what in the name of all the good and holy they do. Because I didn't find any need to have any help. I could. Some guys had assistance. I never did. Cripes. Uh, my wife and my kids would answer the phone and take messages. And if they weren't there, there was uh, somebody else answered. You know, the phone rang in Kentville somewhere. And they'd answer the phone and say, hello, and give me my messages. No, I didn't need any office. I wouldn't have, if I was still there, I still wouldn't have one. It worked so well. Um, you know, it's great to provide employment, but I'm telling you, they're not doing it. If the member isn't meeting the folks, because when I was a cabinet minister, sometimes I had an assistant, sometimes I didn't. And I always had time for my constituents and and my cabinet duties. Anyway, what else you got? Yeah, okay. So what was the selection process um, to become a cabinet minister like? Oh, well, I don't know. You know... You look at the province, and you need some from Halifax, you need somebody in the valley, you need somebody in Truro, you need somebody, you know, the whole region has to be represented. And there were three ridings in, in Kings County, and we already had one guy in cabinet. So I it was doubtful, you know, it was hard to get two. But anyway, I was lucky enough, and they got me in cabinet, made me Minister of Agriculture. Agriculture was good for me because I knew so many farmers anyway, and I'd been in the Federation of Agriculture, I'd been at all the meetings. You suddenly had a deputy minister and a staff, and they were running the department. It worked great. And so what type of training did you receive for that portfolio? I didn't need any training. When, when I, As soon as you get there, you get a briefing book with everything under the sun, you know, all the 
issues that are right there right now, the issues that are coming and what they think and their goals, their aspirations. So you get a whole complete resume of the department as soon as you get there. And what was your relationship with your deputy minister and other staff like? I had total respect for the deputies. I worked with the deputies. If I had a problem, I went over it with the deputy. I never went beyond the deputy. You know, I knew you know, I knew a lot of guys in agriculture that worked there. Some of them went to university with. Some of them I'd met on my farm. So I knew all these guys. But I never discussed policy or did anything to affect them. Everything I discussed was with the deputy. And it has to be that way. When you get ministers meddling in the departments, you get problems. Well, there's only one chain of command, and it's the deputy minister. He has to be the guy in charge, not the minister is in charge of the deputy. But the deputy has to be in charge of the people that work there. And the minister has to stay out of the day-to-day running of the department. Okay. And so what type of influence um, would a deputy minister have on, I guess, the overall direction of the department? Or would the kind of direction be flowing from you to the deputy minister? Oh, the deputy would have control of the department. He would be getting his direction from the government, where they're going. But he would be the guy carrying it out. It was great. It worked so well. And But sometimes I used to see it in government. Some of our ministers would get involved in running, the, try to run the day-to-day operations of government. And it's not their job, and it's not what they're paid for, and they shouldn't do it. It buggers things up. But some did it, I didn't, and I think I had a very successful tenure as a minister by tending to the political arm of things and giving advice and carrying the torch and so on. I mean, I made some, you know, I did some great things in agriculture, and liquor, and transportation. But I didn't meddle with the department policies. And so what do you mean by um, like paying attention to the like political aspects of your department? What would that Well, be? when transportation, I went to transportation because we had trying to get a federal government to sign on to a cost-sharing agreement. They've been trying to get one done for several years. And the premier called me and said, look, sorry, but we've got to get this done. And they're offering $50 million and we need twice that. So I said, okay. So I went over. And we signed a $200 million federal-provincial agreement with the federal government, biggest one they ever signed. It went from 50 to that. But that's, that's what I felt the minister had to do, was get things like that. The hog industry was flat in its belly. And, and when you're getting a program with the federal government, it can't be a program just for Nova Scotia. It has to be a program that doesn't offend any other province. And hogs were, were very important in Nova Scotia and in Saskatchewan. Nobody else paid much attention to hogs. You know, they were there. I had to get Saskatchewan to agree that the federal government could subsidized price of food, feed, and the Quebec government, because they had hugs. So I went to Quebec, visited the minister and the deputy, and told them what we were up to. You know, okay. And they agreed. So as soon as they agreed, then the federal government put in some 
few million to keep the hogs going. And the meat industry went flat because I mean, we have the biggest fur industry in Canada, right here in Nova Scotia. And um, it would be 1954, two little mink were born black, just as black as black could be. That was the first. Yeah. You know, they were just there and um, made a huge difference to the business. So uh, it all just, just spiraled. So it was huge, but the price of mink went from $120 a pelt to $10 a pelt. And these guys were used to being rich and spending their money like they had it. <laughs> and all of a sudden, they had no money. And they had employees. And they had everything. They were in a mess. And I didn't have any money in the provincial government to give them help, so I went to the feds. And, and I remember I went to the minister and said, Look, I need your help. I got these mink farmers. And he said, I'll look into it. An hour later, he got back to me and he said, mink farming is not a federal agriculture responsibility. It's lands and forests. Sir. I said, I don't know anybody over there. And here it's agriculture, so you got to do it. Oh, God, he says, George, why do you do this to me? Anyway, two years in a row, I brought in a program to keep the mink people from going under. You know, that's the sort of thing that the minister does. You know, when they gave me the Liquor Control Act, they gave it to me because I said we should sell liquor. You should be able to go to a bar on Sunday. You should be able to take your children in with you to a tavern for dinner. And if you're in a bar, you should be able to have beer and wine and liquor, not just beer or wine. It took me six weeks to do that. And they've been freaking around talking about it for a long time, but they're afraid. Some of them said, well, we can't let kids in. And other guys would say, well, we can't let, can't open bars on Sunday. Everybody's in church. Hell, I said, I'll convince you. So I held meetings around the province, to which I invited bar owners and hotel owners. And I said, what would you people like? And they told me, and I went back, and I said, this is what it is. I did it around the province and this is what they all want. And so it was your uh, cabinet colleagues who were in opposition? Everyone was afraid of it. They weren't so much in opposition, they just were afraid of doing it. It's the greatest thing I ever did. Well, I know it wasn't the greatest thing I ever did, but it was marvelous. Mm -hmm. I hope it happened without legislation. That was the key. I had to do it without going to the legislature because to do that, you'd open the Liquor Control Act and then boom. But we had a very smart person in the liquor control business, and she was a lawyer, and I said, listen, Margaret, how can I do this without going to the legislature? I kind of do it by regulation that we could change in cabinet. And I asked my deputy minister, who was in management board, I said, this is what I'm trying to do. He laughed. Anyway, Monday morning, Margaret sent over the... She spent the weekend on it, and she sent over the way we could do it, and I gave it to the deputy and I said, what do you think of this? He looked at it and read it and, yep, he said, you can do that. So we did it. And so why did you not want it to be discussed in the legislature? Oh, because it would just get derailed. They talk about everything out of the sun. I didn't want them talking about hours of bars and things like that. And I just wanted to just get it done quietly and do it. And it's never a problem, not a whimper. I knew it would be all right, because all the reporters drank. They thought it was great. Give them one more day to drink.
Anyway, what else you got? Well, okay, so what's it like being um, around the cabinet table? What are the sort of dynamics in the room? And how do you well, you're lined up. You have the same seat every week. According to seniority, the last guy in sits the farthest away from the premier. And always, 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 there is somebody in cabinet and there is somebody in caucus that has to talk about everything. You know, and over the time I was in caucus and cabinet, you'd see it, it'd be one guy. He had to talk about everything, monopolize everything, knew more than anybody. And then he'd get defeated or quit or he'd be gone. Jesus, it wouldn't be a week. And somebody else would jump in and he was the guy that suddenly became a rock star and had to voice his opinion on everything. You know, it was, to me, it was amusing because some of these guys weren't that bright, but they had to talk all the time. But... It was always good. Sometimes it dragged on. I, I'm not a person that likes long meetings, you know. It's more than, more than an hour. It's too long. But we'd meet and have lunch. Twice we started cabinet, started with breakfast and then lunch. And I'm thinking, fellas, for the love of Jesus, boys, you know, give me breakfast or give me lunch, but I don't want both in here. Anyway, it was nice, you know. You'd be there and, and seniority took the most senior people had the right to speak the most. You know, you'd have your cabinet book with the agenda and all the information. And then when it was over, the premier would always, before a meeting was over, the premier would go around and ask each cabinet minister, do you have anything you want to bring up today? And that's the way we did it. And that's the way I did caucus when I was chairman of that too. I'd go around the table, if you've got anything from your constituency that hasn't been brought up, if you've got an issue... And that's the way it went. Sometimes you pretend you're opposed to something if you wanted somebody to do something for you. Okay, so it'd be like a trade-off. Yeah. Obviously there's the principle of cabinet solidarity. You have to have that. You know, that guy, Bill Casey, up in Amherst, Bill was just a, a sore loser. He didn't give a hoot about Nova Scotia. He didn't give a hoot about anything but Bill Casey. When I was a minister trying to get a meeting federal MPs, the Tory party. He was the only one that I could never meet with. Because he was unavailable? or He, just he couldn't be bothered. Yeah, I'm not meeting with those guys. We met in his office one day. He wasn't there. He's Some politicians are phony, and he is phony. He voted against the government because he was getting out, and they wouldn't put him in cabinet. And uh, he said, I'll fix you, I'll vote against you. And he did. You know, we had one, Pat Allen, same way. He voted against the government for no good reasons. They put him out of cabinet. doesn't work. And that was during your time, Pat yeah. Allen? Yeah, I stopped speaking to the son of a gun. He was drunk all the time. In the legislature? No, he was federal MP. Oh, okay. Yeah. Casey was an MP, too, and he just did horses patoot. And so um, you mentioned that you sat on the management board. Did yeah, you? I was chairman of it. Chairman of it. So, what's the role of that particular? Nobody knows. When I got there, I I asked my secretary to tell me who my appointments were with because every other department I was in, I had people wanted to meet with the minister. She said, "You don't have any, and you won't have any. Nobody's going to come and see the chairman of manager board because chairman, you know, it's not minister of the manager board. You're chairman, so people, you're just sort of out of the radar. You're just sort of gone." But it is the most important 
portfolio in government. The people talk about the Minister of Finance. He raises money. That's all he does. He doesn't do anything. He raises money. And he gets to table the budget and look intelligent, smart. It's management board decides where it's going to be spent. And management board was an awful goddamn place. Every Thursday, I get a big binder. And it's what the departments wanted for money to do stuff. And you'd have to read the goddamn stuff. And the departments would send it over to management board. You know, they'd be working on it for six months, a year, two years. And they'd have all this friggin' paper. And they'd think, i got to read this between Thursday night and Tuesday morning when I, the meeting started. It was awful reading all this junk. Because, you know, they, they would write it to try to slip things through. You mean the department? Yeah, they always did Ministers did that, you know, and it was tough. And I had, I was fortunate to have such a good deputy minister that he kept on top of all that stuff. But no management board is, it's every Tuesday, you meet with the cabinet ministers. And you had tremendous power, because if you wanted a project done in your riding, and a minister in some other department had something going on, they could fall off the agenda until he decided he'd help do what you wanted to do. And that could happen. So there are trade-offs there, too? Always trade-offs. But um, you could get more trade-offs when you're chairman of the management board. Everybody wanted something. But when I went to transportation, the first fellow that came to see me was the member from Antigonish. Opposition member. Yeah. Said, I need my road paved. He gave me a list of roads. And I said, I'm not paving all that crap down in Antigonish. He rattled and roared, and I said, Bill, what do you want done? Well, would you do this? And I said, sure, we'll do that. Get out of here. Next appointment was another opposition member. And he same line. I said, what do you need, you know? Because they were good fellas. You know, you work with them. And it was fun being in opposition. And what was that transition like from being a cabinet minister with 41 fellow caucus colleagues to being eight in opposition? Oh, well, I had to wipe my phone off, you know, take everything out of the phone, and clean the car. Well, I'd left the car, I didn't drive it during the election campaign. And I had that car spartless, and I left it there for the new minister to take over. And when I saw a car a week later, I thought, why did it bother? was wrappers and hamburgers and junk. It looked like a wagon, you know, it was just gross. Anyway, no, you just clean out your office, then everybody says goodbye, then you're gone. Now, when you leave your department, when you're still in government, you know, they'll have a little quiet dinner with you and half a dozen others, and they'll, they'll give you a painting or a picture or something, you know, if they like you. But when you go from government to opposition, goodbye, you know. Don't call us, we'll call you. <laughs> because one of one of the guys that I knew in government, he worked for the department. I knew him well, I used to see him, and he wasn't a deputy, I think he was assistant deputy or something. But I saw him a lot, and I liked him a lot. And when the government changed, I just happened to see him on the street one day, and I saw him, and boy, he just took a shot. He went on the other side of the street. And then I thought, by golly, you know, if a grit saw him talking, to one of the liberals saw him talking to me, They'd think he was telling me secrets. So later that day, I got a call and said, look, I'm sorry, but these guys are so paranoid. If they saw me talking to you, 
they think I was giving you secrets or something. I said, fair enough. <laughs> and that's the way it was, too. They were they were afraid that everybody in the civil servants was a Tory and going to divulge their secrets. And was that because you were in office for so long? Yeah, No, yeah, and it's because we went to opposition, and they thought anybody that got a job must have been a Tory. I never cared. Never fired anybody who worked transportation department. You know, some did, I didn't. Anyway, I liked people. What else you got there? So I guess um, the last question I have on your job as a cabinet minister is how did you balance your constituency work with your role as a cabinet minister? Oh, it was mad. It was, we were just there. And most of the week I was in Halifax, and the weekends I was at home in the valley. And, you know, I only lived an hour and 20 minutes from Halifax. So in an hour and 20 minutes, I could be home. So I could go home for lunchtime meetings with people. And then I go back to Halifax. Sometimes I go back to the valley at night. You know, sometimes it'd be three trips a day. <laughs> but then Kate was home and she was very supportive and helpful. And my kids were around and um, they'd take messages on the phone. And then after a while, I got I had an executive assistant. And I had one that was a disaster. I had to fire the son of a bitch. And he was going to sue me. And I thought, oh, shit. You can't sue me. It'd be embarrassing. So I helped him get a job. He was a lawyer. Helped him get a job at another law firm. The law firm he came from wouldn't take him back, and I didn't blame them. They snookered me a little. They knew he was a creep, and they didn't tell me when he asked me if he could work for me. Anyway, he wouldn't take a call at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. You know, just a lot of things he just wouldn't do. You know, you take calls at night. It's the job. You know, and if I'm going to... Tadamagush, come with me so you can drive the car home if I get tired, you know, stuff like that. Keep in touch with the constituents, but he didn't want to do that. And then I got another guy that was fabulous, and he did a lot of good stuff and talked to everybody, and, and then he left. And then I got another guy, and, and he was good too. You know, you can do it without them, but it was it was easier if you had somebody that could do the backgrounds, and, you know, when they had a call, they could check and help out. But the constituents want to talk to the MLA. They don't want to talk to um, some representative. Oh, you just you just do it. You know, you just put in long hours. And I enjoyed it. It's fun. What would you say are some differences between, I guess, the way the legislature is now from when you sat in the legislature, just based on? Well, it's it? more and more personal now. All the attacks are personal. It's not about policy. They try to narrow it down to personal things you know it's tough but it is what it is you know and now there's social media and it's it's very different you know cell phones were just coming in when i was elected and you know we had one in my car then i know when i got one and i was in minister of agriculture the minister said holy smokes we don't have that in our budget for what i said well your car phone is $400 a month. Well, now everybody got one. But, you know, my dad had one in 1968 in his car. That was the first one. But they've come a long way. Now they're in, you know, your wristwatch. But, you know, communications is so different now and instantaneous. It's probably still good fun in the legislature. I don't know if they're, I don't know if they're enjoying themselves as much as they did when I was there. I know that for a long time they, they weren't having suppers together as a caucus. And you have to, you really have to work as a team, as a caucus, and you got to get everybody on the same page. And then you have to work as a team in the legislature and getting everybody so they're, 
They don't hate each other. And within the caucus or within the whole works of them. They've got to get together. And the best way to do that is to sit them down and have dinner with them and chat with them and they find out that you're not a tell of the hunter or you're there for the same reason they are. Um, but unless that happened, people are just mad all the time and taking pot shots at each other. It's a shame. And so if you had to give advice on how to improve Nova Scotia's political system, what would, what would that be? I think the politicians have to become more congenial and more uh, friendly to one another. You know, the day the election's over, that's when the parties have to disappear. You know, some of my best friends didn't vote for me. Hard to believe, but they didn't. And some people that weren't friends did vote for me. So the minute the election's over, you have to throw out the politics of the party and get down to business and work together. And I think if they started working together and stopped being so nitpicky, like this stupid Senate business, I mean, give it up. I mean, that's doing more to harm politicians than anything because when one politician is in trouble they all are you know everybody in my writing thought i was the most honest guy in the world but if i went to Anaganish, they all thought huh, that's that crook and and then it's a fact because we had a guy that was made an example of and kicked him out of the legislature and i was up in his writing campaigning for our candidate and they said huh, you're all just stealing, too. You just made an example of our guy. So people have that impression. And and when they do that, their opinion of all politicians goes downhill. And uh, and Antigonish, who was the person who was kicked out? No, Port Hawkesbury. Billy Joe. Billy Joe? Clean. He's mayor of Port Hawkesbury. Nicest guy you ever saw. And when he was a minister, he was the first guy to return your phone call. I mean, some of my minister colleagues... Never called me back. I'm still waiting. They just didn't call back. They wouldn't. I mean, one guy disappeared. Gone for a week. Didn't know where the hell he was. If you were to give anybody who was becoming an MLA advice, what would that advice be? Oh, I guess don't forget where you're from. And when you get a phone call, remember that it's the most important thing on that person's agenda. So it's got to be the most important thing on yours. It's not the Board of Trade or that organization that gets you elected. It's the people. You have to spend time with them, whether they're rich or poor. They're making a difference. I spent more time with poor people than rich people when I was in government, in opposition, because they needed more. You know, they wanted your help. So did you miss it at all? Well, I've been busy as the devil since I left um, politics. You know, I was commodore of the Yacht Squadron for three years. I've been sailing my boat a lot. I did a lot of... Um, mediation with the um, young offenders. So who did you do that with the mediation? Oh, in Halifax. Was it like part of an organization? Yeah. Yeah, there's a department of um, young offenders department and they have all these kids that they're trying to keep out of jail. You mediate between the kids and the person that has had a problem. You try to work something out keep them from going to the big house. And are you still involved in the party? No. And I was chairman of the Waterfront Development Corporation. That was nice. Missed you mean that. in Halifax? Yeah. After I did politics, yeah. Why aren't you involved in the party now? Every dog has his day. When I was elected, there were a couple of former MLAs 
used to come to the annual meeting and they would stand up and they would say, when we did it, this is how we did it. You guys should do it that way. And there was just a big oh. So you have to know when to step aside. If they wanted my input or information, they should call. I'll give it to them. Now, John Hamm, when he was there, asked me if I would be their fundraiser. So I raised money for them for two or three years. And then somebody else came along and said, I want to be the fundraiser. I said, okay. And they gave me two absolutely beautiful Nova Scotia crystal scotch glasses. And I thought, this is lovely. You know, I don't care. You know, I, I'm busier. And I don't want to interfere. And that's a big thing. And that's one of the things that an MLA has to know. You know, unless he's planning to run again, then get the hell out of the way and let the new people. I never interfered, you know. And I'm not on the Waterfront Development Board anymore, and I don't bother. Um, I'm not Commodore now, and I don't say anything to anybody. about. I think he's doing a great job, but I don't meddle, you know. You have to, I think you have to move away the minute you're done. And that was a big job. No, it's such a commitment that I miss weekends and holidays. The only way you got a day off as an MLA was if you got in your car and you drove to New Brunswick. You know, you had to be out of town. Otherwise, you were working. And I didn't mind. I loved it. Bring it on. But I got to just, I wanted to sail a boat. So I bought a sailboat. Got out of politics, bought a boat. Been sailing ever since. And I like it. That was George Archibald, who was an MLA for the Annapolis Valley riding of King's North and minister of a handful of portfolios in John Buchanan's progressive conservative governments. Thanks again for listening to On the Record Offscript. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, consider heading over to offscript.ca and clicking on the donate button and becoming a monthly donor for a small amount, say $3, $5, or $8 a month. And if you can spare a few minutes, please give the podcast a star rating in iTunes and write a review if you have time. We'll be back with another new episode next Wednesday. 